Warning, content not suitable for children. Listener discretion advised, yo. Screaming Chewy Show, your source of entertainment and overall fuckery. And it starts now. Hey everyone, welcome back to another exciting episode of the Screaming Chewy Show. This is your host, Screaming Chewy. And uh, I'd like to welcome... uh, very special guest here, uh, Jesse Beyer. Hey, how are you guys? Hey, so go ahead and tell me about yourself. Tell me about your book. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a speaker, author, and mental health advocate. And my book, which is called How to Heal, is coming out this May. So at the time of recording, it's just under seven weeks, which is super, super exciting. But what I do is I help people feel really valid and heard and appreciated in everything that they're struggling with in terms of their mental health, and then give them some strategies and personal development tools that they can use to design a life that they're actually excited to wake up to. Now, my book in particular is all about natural and integrative trauma therapies. So I wrote this because it was kind of everything I wish I knew when I was struggling with my mental health. I thought that you could only go to talk therapy, that that was the only option for healing. And I know that for a lot of people, that's very uncomfortable and they won't even go. So I wanted to put together some information about different alternatives and integrative therapies, things that are outdoors, things that are working with animals, things that are movement-based that Mm -hmm. people could then use to find a therapeutic method that is really healing for them and approachable for them and comfortable for them. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's what I do. Wow, that's amazing. So it's pretty much just an alternative way just to have people more comfortable and opening up, basically? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's lots of benefits, but primarily talk therapy is great, right? There's lots of research surrounding it, lots of empirical evidence, lots of anecdotes, things like that. But if you are too uncomfortable with it to even go in the first place, then it's completely useless. So some of these natural and integrative therapies that I discuss, they are more approachable because you're not just sitting in a therapist's office. You might be outside, you might be working with horses, whatever that is. And then of course there are their own unique benefits. I mean, nature and animals are powerful co-therapists. The movement can help release some of the physical trauma that's stuck in the body and things like that. So there's lots of different benefits to these types of therapies. Well, I could totally see the animals are amazing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. In my book, I focus specifically on horses and dogs, but I mean, I've heard people that have like emotional support turtles and whatever, and just having that animal interaction can be really, really powerful. <laughs> hey, whatever works, right? Yeah. I mean, if it works, honestly, that's the thing though. If it works for you, then it works. It doesn't really matter as much why or how, but if it helps you heal, then go for it. So is it like their own personal animals or, or, um, it- It depends. Yeah. So with the equine assisted therapy, the horse therapy that I discussed, that is at an equine assisted therapy facility. So you are one piece of it. There is a animal expert there. That is another piece. There's the mental health therapist. That's the other piece. And then there's the horse. That's the final piece. So they call it the four legged stool. And so you go to their facility and you're usually using the horses as metaphors and symbols and moving them around and kind of enacting different scenes from your life to better understand it and to help trigger some changes in your own life. With canine assisted therapy, there's some different options. The option that I focus most on in my book is about going to a therapist's office where they have a dog there that is trained as a therapy dog. And that can help again with the metaphors and breaking the ice and just having that animal connection. You also can have obviously your own service animal that is trained to perform a specific task for you. Um, And they can go with you everywhere, you know, ADA laws and everything like that. You can also have an emotional support animal, though there's not a lot of research on that. There's much, um, less regulations in terms of that like they're a pet they're not a working dog so it really depends on what path you want to focus on but the ones that I focus on mostly in my book are equine assisted therapy and then official canine assisted therapy oh wow that's amazing and uh, I was just wondering because you know like what if they bring their own pets like a lizard or a snake and like (laughs) fucking bites them or something (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that would definitely be something you'd have to chat with your own therapist about, about whether you could bring that animal to the therapy session. I imagine if it's an equine-assisted therapy facility, they're probably going to want to focus on their own animals. But honestly, I've never thought about bringing your own animal to a different <laughs> therapy setting. And so uh, these animals train to, like, how you say, like, to trigger certain things. Um, is it, like, from, like, trauma from their childhood or something like that? Yeah, it really, really depends. So with therapy dogs, they undergo a training program that really helps a calm them down. So they're not like jumping all over the person and getting all excited. Um, but they are able to recognize certain emotions in the person and react accordingly. So for example, one therapist that I spoke to, she told me a story of her dog and a client where this person, this client was so tense and uptight and angry coming into the session that the dog just would not even sit next to them. They're like, I'm not engaging with this. And then wow. as soon as that person was able to relax a little bit, then the dog came back and sat on the couch next to them and was able to be there for emotional support and petting and grooming and things like that. The horses are so incredible because horses are prey animals like humans as well. And so they understand what it means to be hyper aware while still being grounded, which is a really powerful example for trauma survivors. So a lot of times I could tell so many stories about horses and trauma survivors, but the horses can recognize things in the people. So for example, there was a woman who went to an equine assisted therapy facility. Just, she just went, you know, she wasn't there for a therapy session. She just showed up for a visit, I suppose. And this horse came up to her and kind of nibbled her on the arm. And she's like, oh, that's really cute. And then the horse did a lap around the field, came back and kind of bit on her arm a little bit. She's like, okay, okay, that's, that's love. I get it. And then the horse did one more circle, came back and like chomped on her arm. And this oh woman was God. like, ow, that hurts. And from that progression of, oh, that's cute. Oh, wow, that's a lot of love. Oh, that hurts. That enables her to open up about the abusive relationship that she was in because that was the same pattern she was experiencing at home. So for whatever reason, that horse sensed that about her, knew that that was something she would resonate with, and then did an action that enabled that story to come out and enabled her to speak to the therapist about it. So animals are incredible. Those are just a couple stories of it. I had no idea animals or even horses were that in tune with human emotion. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. It is. It's, it's insane. And horses are just so intuitive, honestly, even more so than dogs. I'm a huge dog person, but just being around horses and seeing their strength and yet their gentleness and all of these things coming together. And just when you look in their eyes and I don't know, it's, it's crazy and so powerful. Wow. Such emotion, huh? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. I had no idea. So it's mainly horses and dogs? Those are two of the therapies that I focused on. There's actually nine in there. Some of the other ones are things like flower essence therapy, ecotherapy, craniosacral therapy, dance movement therapy, EMDR, um, meditation and mindfulness and things like that. Um, so do you basically do like an evaluation on the person and just kind of estimate what would, what method would work best on them? So I'm not a licensed therapist, so that's not something that I'm able or qualified to do. But what I do through this book is I provide a lot of information about the therapies. And basically every chapter focuses on a therapy. And I'll go through things like what's the research surrounding it? What are some anecdotes surrounding it? How does this therapy work? What can you expect when you go into a therapy session like this? How do you find a licensed therapist in this specific modality? And then through providing all that information, the reader can go through and say, okay, well, I feel like I really resonate with ecotherapy because I like spending time outside. So I'm going to go give that a shot. And now I have the resource that I need to be able to find a licensed practitioner in that specific field. So I don't tell them what is right for them. That is completely their decision. I just provide information to them that they can see what the therapies are like and see which one might fit best for them. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, so the ecotherapy, is there any specific place you take them? Like, is it always the same spot or you guys change it, that around? Yeah, ecotherapy, it really depends. And there's actually such a thing as indoor ecotherapy, which is very counterintuitive, but it's pretty cool. Um, but the good thing about ecotherapy is that nature is so accessible to anyone. You can go sit out on your porch and you're experiencing the benefits of nature, or you can go climb a mountain and experience the benefits of nature. So a lot of times it really depends on you. So for example, if you are a cancer patient and you really can't go on a hike, like you just don't have the physical stamina to go on a hike, 
then you can do ecotherapy by sitting on your porch with your therapist. Maybe the therapist has a little backyard you can go sit in. Or if you are a war veteran, for example, and you really resonate with big soaring cliffs and giant waterfalls and all of these very dramatic elements of nature, you can practice ecotherapy by going on this three-day hike with your therapist or there's some different retreat things like that with therapists involved. So it really just depends. And then ecotherapy as well, indoor ecotherapy is the concept of bringing these elements of nature indoors. So things like sandboxes, things like paintings of nature, things like those little bubbling fountains that sound like a river, different things like that. By bringing those elements of nature inside, you actually can experience the benefits of nature too. And one really interesting thing about that is that the original studies on the benefits of nature, the psychological and physiological benefits of nature, they were done with paintings of nature. They weren't done with actual nature. And even in those original studies, the power of nature was seen and proven so powerfully that it's just crazy. I mean, even having a painting inside can have that effect. Just imagine what being outside, actually outside, can do for you. Wow, I could totally see that. Yeah, um, you know, like when I go to the White Mountains or something, just being out there in the woods, like in a lake in the middle of nowhere, is just so calming. You know, I, I could totally see that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nature is so powerful. And I know speaking from personal experience as well as professional experience through the research I've done through writing this book, nature is so spiritual. It acts as a co-therapist, just like the horses and the dogs do. And it can hold you and resonate with you and just be this safe space for you. I mean, obviously a tree isn't going to tell anyone your secrets. You're not going to be judged by the rock that's sitting over there. It's just this space that has such spiritual healing power not even religious necessarily but just that connection with something bigger than yourself something that can hold that space for you and really bring you peace and understanding and resonance and all of these things that you are desperately needing as a trauma survivor nature can do all of that for you and it's crazy well that connection with the universe right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely and the best thing about nature too is that you can just show up right like you can go unshowered, you didn't brush your hair, you forgot to eat breakfast, your socks are on inside out, like you can show up as a complete wreck and nature is still going to accept you and hold you and help you heal. You know, if you go to a therapist's office downtown, it's like, all right, okay, I got to put on clothes, I got to drive the car, I got to look somewhat presentable going to this therapist's office because there's another human there and what are they thinking of me? Whereas when you go out in nature, there's none of that. You can show up as a broken, bloodied mess, and it is still going to give you that same sense of healing as if you showed up in an evening gown. Nice. <laughs> and um, is it any certain type of trauma or just all kinds? Oh, man, trauma is really hard to categorize into different <laughs> types because it's really, you know, whatever hurt you, whatever you're feeling is your trauma. Um, but nature can be powerful for literally anything. It can be for trauma. It can be for depression. It can be for anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Like there's so many benefits as well. And when you look at the physiological benefits as well, things like decreased stress, increased quality of life, increased mood, decreased depression and anxiety symptoms. You can go to nature for anything. You can go to nature for, I don't know, overeating or bloat or a broken (laughs) knee or whatever. And it still has that same sense of spiritual connection. So it's all types of trauma and it's more than trauma too. Wow. So it could probably like help with uh, maybe like medication, you know, instead of taking medication for anxiety or something, maybe just go on nature or something. Yeah, there are lots of studies out there that show the link between decreased anxiety symptoms and time spent in nature. So that's definitely powerful for anxiety as well. That's amazing. And uh, what what made you get into this line of work? Yeah, so when I was in high school, I really struggled with my mental health. I, you know, I was depressed, I was self-harming, I really struggled with food and my body image. And I was also in this really codependent relationship with someone else who was struggling with his mental health. Now, that relationship unfortunately ended with his suicide attempt, but that whole time in my life, both with my struggles and his struggles, really made me see how important this is. I mean, obviously, when you've lived through it, it means everything to you, but going through that and having conversations with people and seeing how many other people were struggling with their mental health, I never wanted anyone to feel as alone as I felt. I never wanted anyone to feel as hopeless as I felt. And so I started speaking up about my story and saying that, hey, it's okay to talk about this stuff. You can ask for help. You can share your story. This is not something that needs to stay in the shadows. And furthermore, I wanted to be able to provide 
resources and information, like I said in the beginning of this interview, to people so that they could get the help they needed instead of feeling so struck down by fear and stigma and just discomfort with going to talk therapy. Mm -hmm. Especially if they have like an abusive partner or something that like gaslights them or makes them insecure or makes them think they're crazy, right? And they don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, bringing an intimate partner into the picture when they're not supportive, you know, that's a huge thing. And that's actually something that a lot of therapists work on as well, because you can't, you can't heal in the same environment that you were broken in. And so if you go to therapy and you make these great steps towards progress, and then you go back home, back to that partner that maybe they're abusive, maybe they're gaslighting you, maybe they're making you feel crazy, like you said, that can really counteract those healing effects. So some therapists will try to like give you homework to go home and work with your partner on. They can sometimes bring that person into therapy too, to talk it through. Other therapists will help you recognize when it's not a safe situation. They can help you create a safety plan and connect you to resources to get you out of that situation. So yeah, that's a, another huge complex piece to this whole puzzle. Wow. I never thought about that, that homework thing. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did that a little bit when I was in high school too, is I would have not homework per se, but just, Hey, try approaching the conversation this way or try writing them a letter or whatever. And I would come home to my parents and be like, Hey, can we try this thing? Can I read you this letter that I wrote? Can we do this, that, and the other thing, just different ways of approaching building that relationship and breaking down those walls and increasing vulnerability and things like that. Wow. And of course that just makes you stronger and stronger, you know, just, just even opening up about it, you know? It does. It does. It was really interesting when I started speaking about my story, because looking back at some of the first conversations that I had with people about what I had been through, I was really awkward. It was very not eloquent. I don't think I made eye contact at all the whole time. And now it's like, this is what I talk about almost every single day, whether it's a podcast interview, a blog post, a social media post, standing up on stage and speaking about it, whatever it is, it's so much easier to share and so much easier to speak about because I know how much I would have wanted to hear someone stand up and say, hey, I was here and now I'm here. And you can have that hope. You can move through this process. I mean, that would have made the world a difference to me. And, you know, like you said, the more you say it, the more you do stuff, the stronger you get and the easier it is to own your story instead of resenting all those pieces of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's amazing that you're doing that, you know, helping many people because that's, it could be very difficult, you know, just, could ruin somebody's life, just their experiences or what's happened, you know, and you just bring so much hope to them. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, that's really my goal just to, to hold the lantern for people as they start to move through, because I, I don't know what your experience with mental health is, but I know for me, when I was struggling, it was just so dark and it was so bleak and there was no one there. No one understood. No one was able to sit there and say, hi. I'm going to sit here with you and I know it's dark and I know it's smelly, but I'm going to sit here with you and we're going to get through this together. And so being able to literally do that for a career and to speak to people around the country who have struggled and have never had anyone tell them that before, that is just the most fulfilling thing I could ever ask to do. Wow. And I, I bet some of them are pretty shocked too. Like what you, you want to talk? about that you don't talk to me <laughs> yeah absolutely I had a couple of presentations when I was figuring out exactly how much of my story was appropriate to share on stage I had a couple of presentations where they were like your story is gory it is over the top it's disgusting it's disturbing it's like all of these words throwing at me and of course I'm like this is my story. Like I lived <laughs> through this. This is my life. You don't have a right to come up and tell me those things. But That's... it was that reaction that you just said. They're like, oh my God, she's saying that on stage. And wait, what? You know? So it was definitely a balance to try to learn, okay, what do I say on stage? What do I say in individual conversations? What do I share? How do I share this? Things like that. But there have definitely been people that I start talking about this and they're like, Oh, whoa. Okay. She's we're okay. All right. We're going there. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and it might be, you know, gory and just details they might not want to hear, but unfortunately that's real life, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think the more that people get comfortable saying words like depression and suicide and self-harm, the more that the culture is going to shift to a place where people are comfortable asking for help and they're comfortable offering help. And that is how that stigma is going to be broken down. And the people who need the help the most are going to get it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there's so many people out there that commit suicide 
and you hear all their friends and family saying like, I never would have thought they would do this. I had no idea they were depressed or, you know, but maybe that person had so much support and had no idea, you know, they never talked to nobody. They thought nobody cared maybe. Right. And it's definitely a two way street. I mean, I think that there is so much stigma and so much pressure to be strong and tough it out and don't talk about it. It makes you weak and you can't struggle. You have such a good life on paper. There's so, so, so much of that. But it also comes down to the person who is struggling to say that, hey, I am worth asking for help. Like my future is worth maybe a little bit of discomfort, maybe a little bit of rejection, but I, I want this help. I need that help. And that's a process in and of itself to get to a point where you are able to ask for help. And so it is definitely that reciprocal relationship between the people giving the help and the people asking for the help. Yeah, yeah, you're 100% right right there. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I knew this guy. Well, I didn't really know him a lot, but, you know, I went to middle school with him and then high school. And he was a jock, you know, very fit guy, very popular with the ladies and the cheerleaders. <laughs> and everybody loved him. The whole school knew him. And he was kind of a bully to some people, I heard. But <clears throat> then uh, he later ended up committing suicide. He hung himself in front of his little sister. Oh, geez. And uh, everybody was like, why would he do that? He had such a great life. Everybody loved him. But then mm -hmm. later I heard from a close friend that I guess he was being sexually sexually abused by his dad and his dad's friends. I'm like, wow. what the fuck? Like, you know, just, yeah. she never know, right? Mm -hmm. You really never know. And it's, it's, it just breaks my heart to hear stories like that. And I, I know a little bit of potentially what that person is feeling. Cause when I was struggling with my mental health, I had like the best resume, you know, like I had it all <laughs> on paper. I had two parents that were together. We were upper middle class. Like I was a varsity athlete. I got really good grades and you know, I did all of the things. And you look at someone's life on paper and they're like, they have it all. They couldn't be struggling with anything. And then you find out that there's this home life you don't know about or these mental illnesses that you don't know about. And it just, you know, there, there really is no correlation between what your life looks like on paper and what you feel inside. And it's really interesting because people are always like, oh, well, you know, there's starving children in Africa, so you can't have anything wrong with you if you have food on your table and a roof over your head. And it's like, that's BS. You can absolutely be struggling no matter what your life looks like on paper, no matter how much food you have in the fridge, how much money you have in the bank. Those are not correlated. And anyone of any class, any economic status can struggle. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Very true. It's just, uh, you know, so many things you don't think about, you know, what people are going through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're really only privy to one part of their life. Like you were only privy to how he acted in middle school and high school. And, you know, other people only privy to what they see at work or, you know, there's so many different aspects of people's lives that it's nearly impossible to guess exactly what's going on when you only spend one part of their life with them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell what happens behind closed doors, you know? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And um, do you mind talking about your story? Yeah, that's fine. Go for it. What do you want to know? <laughs> um, whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So one of the main presentations that I give for mental health now is all about how to safely and successfully support someone who's struggling with their mental health. And given that relationship that I was in in high school, that's something that is so near and dear to my heart because I did everything wrong <laughs> when I was supporting that person. <laughs> and it really screwed me up. It screwed him up. And I, I truly think that we would have both been a lot better off if I did things differently. Now, when, he, when I first found out that he was struggling I was a sophomore in high school. I was 15 years old. I was really young. And I felt really special because I was the person that he confided in. I was the person that he said, I trust you and I'm going to share with you everything that's going on in my life. So I put on my big girl pants and I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep you alive. I took his world and I put it on my shoulders and took complete responsibility. And what that did was it enabled me slash forced me to give him whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. So Ooh. my time, my emotions, my body, my everything, you know, whatever he needed, I was going to give it to him because I wanted to keep him alive. And it was this weird twisted sense of pride because it's like, Hey, I'm doing this thing. Like he is happy and he's alive because of what I've done. And then it was really interesting. And I actually was just thinking about this the other day when he 
decided to try to take his own life, there was a lot of self-esteem issues wrapped up in that for me because I got in this train of, of thought of, well, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't enough to keep him alive. And when you start getting in that headspace, it's like not helpful and not healthy and something you definitely have to back out of quickly. But that was very real for me for a long time after that. There were a lot of self-worth issues wrapped up in there for me. Oh my but God. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but it's really interesting to think about too, because so many people have that best friend, that confidant that they tell everything to. And having that person in your life is so important. But that person also needs to understand that they are not responsible for your life. They can be there and they can support you and they can hold the space for you and they can do so many things for you. But that supportive role, you also have to keep yourself safe too. You have to keep up your boundaries. You have to recognize that their choices are not a reflection of how well you supported them. But you know, it's such a complicated relationship being in that position. So that's why I love speaking about it. And I love talking about it because I've been there and I've done it all wrong. And now I know what to do better. And I'm, I'm hoping that by sharing that story and sharing what I now know, as far as how to support someone that I can save someone else from being in the spot that I was and the spot that he was, honestly. That's great. You know, that way people realize like, Hey, wait a minute, I'm following that same pattern right there, you know, or something. Hey, I'm Stephen Webb, the host of Living Deeper Lives, the podcast that looks deeper into what it means to be human so you can overcome your suffering and start living a full life. And you're currently listening to The Screaming Chewy Show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of the big pieces for me and him too as well was the confidentiality piece because we were both under 18. Um, and so he did not want his parents involved. He did not want them to know what was going on. He did not want the story of him struggling to get out. He did not want to go to therapy. And so we both got stuck in this space of like, okay, I'm going to keep your secret. You're only going to talk to me. And then no one's going to know and we can keep your privacy private. And that was a mistake, honestly, because it got to the point where he was consistently harming himself and getting ready to fully take his own life. And you know, that's when you need to step in and get that professional support. But that line of confidentiality, especially when you're a minor, it's like, you feel special because you want to help them keep their secret and you get why privacy is important, right? I mean, this isn't something you want to just scream from the rooftops. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's a time when you need that extra support from a professional that knows what they're doing and has the experience and can really step in and support you. So that was definitely another piece of that as well. So by, by harming himself, do you, you think he was like kind of building up to suicide, kind of like just pushing it more and more? I don't think so necessarily. I think self-harm and suicide are definitely different. I know for me, my self-harm habits came from a way of just slowing my brain down and translating all of this incomprehensible emotions and thoughts into something definitely understandable, which is physical pain. And it was just a way for me to calm down. That's why I did it. It wasn't like mini suicide attempts or anything like that. I think for him, it was very similar. It was a lot of anger, a lot of emotion, and it was something that he could control. Um, But I, I don't think that it was necessarily leading up to a suicide attempt or anything like that. Oh, okay. And uh, uh, was he doing like any drugs or anything? Uh, I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. Not that I know of. No. Oh, okay. And um, I mean, obviously he had many issues, a lot going on and um, seems like he projected a lot of that on you. Yeah, I potentially projected, but I think he saw something in me, whether that was the ability to be a support system or someone who was also struggling and just latched onto that as someone who could understand and someone mm-hmm. who could know what was needed in times like that because I had been there. So, I mean, I am not angry towards him. I'm not resentful of him. None of that is there. We both were struggling. We both handled the situation very improperly. Um, But, you know, we're both still alive and we've both made it through it. And so that time period in my life is definitely something I look back on with a lot of emotion. Yes, but also a lot of grace and gratefulness as well. Man, and so young too. That that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon. I mean, mental health concerns in high school students are are so so prevalent right now. Yeah, huh? Not many people think about that. You know, our youth, how how they're dealing with stuff. 
Mm-hmm. I actually had a conversation with someone the other day and she asked if I had done any sort of mental health work with elementary school students. And I was like, well, no, because talking to adults about mental health and talking to seven-year-olds about mental health is very, very different. <laughs> but she brought up this point of if we teach kids from that young of an age how to cope with feelings of sadness, how to ask for help from people who can truly support them, what that might be different than when they're in high school that have those coping skills that have that broken down stigma. And it would be just really interesting to see how educating kids at such a young age about mental health, obviously tastefully, not, you know, going over the top or anything, but giving them those skills and those discussions at a younger age, how that would make a difference for when they got into high school. And I was like, that's a good conversation. That's a conversation we need to be having. It was such a good idea. And I'd, you know, I'd be really curious to see what difference that could make. Yeah, huh? at least, you know, teach them that they could open up and they have somebody to talk to instead of like, you know, because obviously they, they don't want to tell their parents because, you know, some parents might not react accordingly or, you know, the maybe parents, you know, they might mm-hmm. like scream at them or I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, it, it depends about who's going to be that, or that safe support system for them. But it, it's so many pieces. It's teaching the kids that, hey, it's okay to ask for help. Here's who you can ask for help. It's sharing with the teachers and the coaches that, hey, if your kid comes to you, you're not your kid, but if one of your students comes to you and says, hey, I'm struggling, this is how you can help them. And then it's having that same discussion with the parents of your kid's not weak, your kid's not broken, they just need some extra support. Here's how you can do that. So it's all of those educational pieces coming together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stigma with therapy. You know, a lot of people think that if you're seeing a therapist that you're crazy or, you know, something like that. But, you know, a lot of times it's just, you know, some someone just to talk to, you know, or, you know, people having anxiety or something, you know, just doesn't mean you have issues, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And people, like you said, they go to therapy for so many things. They could go to therapy because their boss is yelling at them at work and it's frustrating them. Like that is a completely valid reason to go to therapy as is having a diagnosis of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or something like that. So therapy can be beneficial for so many different reasons and so many different people. And, you know, like you said, I wish people would recognize that there's not, it's, you're not broken. If you go to therapy, you're not you know, weak or, or anything like that for going to therapy. It's just that extra relationship. And one thing that's really good about the therapeutic relationship as well is a, you have to build it up with the right person, but B, they are able to step in and provide this perspective that you don't get from your friends and family members. Ideally, your friends and family members are going to be on your side. They will have your back. They're waving your flag to the death, right? They are so supportive of you but they're also very emotionally involved in your life. And you have to see them every Thursday night at family dinner or whatever that is. So that therapist is that unbiased opinion, that step back from being emotionally involved in your life. And that is such a valuable space to be in and and such a different space than you're going to get from your friends and family members. Oh, wow. Yeah. You don't have to, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're completely hundred percent right, right there. Because you could open up to a therapist and not have to worry about them judging or kind of, you know, or or getting really emotional, like you were saying, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. My therapist when I was in college, she was fantastic. I loved her to death. But she told me, because it was the college counseling center, and so we're all on campus together. And she told me when we started seeing each other, she's like, look, if you see me on the street and you want to say hi, I will definitely say hi back to you. But I'm not going to initiate that. Like, if you want to pretend I don't exist, you can do that too. And it was just really cool to see that she really isn't involved in my life. You know, like she doesn't care about what happens to me on a personal level, on a professional level, obviously she does. But just having that distance of, I see her in this room and everything stays in this room and that's it. And we're done was really, it created a safe space. It really, really did. Oh, that's so cool. And also like, you know, in case you're with a friend and you see your therapist in public that way maybe you could ignore her instead of like oh hey and then people are like <clears throat> your friends are like who's that oh, that's my therapist right. you know and maybe there's that fear of them judging like well you're seeing a therapist well why what you know right and I think that's why she said what she said you know it was like if you don't want to acknowledge me that is totally fine I'm not going to take offense at that at all <laughs> and it was it was it was kind of funny in the moment, but thinking back on it, it was like, yeah, that's a really good, I like that a lot. You know, it's a really good perspective to have. That's a good therapist. 
Oh, she was awesome. She was so awesome. I loved her. We were very, very different people, like very different people. I am energetic and like I have big and loud emotions and things like that. And she was very calm and quiet and just the total opposite of me as a person, but we worked really well together. So it was great. Uh, nice little balance right there, right? Yeah, <laughs> I definitely think I needed that from her. <clears throat> and um, I think it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned about, you know, therapy and just people, how they need somebody to talk to or like if their boss is screaming at them. That reminded me of a, this place I used to work at. There was a, this lady, she was a coworker of mine, and the boss was really mean towards her. You know, there's, there's a lot of unfairness at work. You know, I notice women get treated different than men sometimes. And, like, for any little mistake, he would, like, fucking scream at her. And, like, and she would, like, tell me sometimes. She would open up and just tell me how she dreads coming to work every day. And she was in tears. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, I didn't even know what to say. You know, I'm like, it, everything will be better. Like, it's it's okay. Like, but honestly, I'm like, fuck, like, what I do, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's such a difficult position to be in. And definitely makes me sad to hear that. And you're totally right. I mean, I saw this post the other day. It's gone around a couple of times, but it was this story of a male and a female coworker and the female coworker was constantly getting complaints made about her because she was taking too long to work with clients and yada, yada. And so the male coworker uh, got into her email inbox, you know, collaboratively, but he took over her email inbox and was sending emails as her. So as a person with a female name in the signature and she worked from his email inbox. So sending emails and working with clients with a male name in the signature and it totally changed the the guy who was acting as the girl got yelled at and complained against and everything like that whereas the girl who was in the guy's inbox she had clients being like take your time you're great at what you do yada yada and literally the only difference was the fact that one was signing off with a dude's name and one was signing off with a girl's name just it's crazy right it's absolutely insane that those differences, just having a male name versus a female name, not even the quality of your work, not even the speed of your work, but just that difference can make such a powerful impact on how you're perceived in the workplace. And they probably never even met. They just emailed. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it actually started as they accidentally logged into each other's emails or something like that. And then they're like, oh, let's run this experiment and see what happens. Damn, that's nuts. And it's just so sad. You know, a lot of people don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that that coworker of yours was able to, you know, that she felt safe enough with you to share what was going on with her. That that's definitely a good thing that she had that in her life. Yeah, she would like open up to me and she would just start crying. And I'm like, I just hugged her. I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I was like, I really don't know what to say. I'm like, it'll get better. You know, maybe <laughs> I didn't know what to tell her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The most powerful tool that I have found and that I've found through my research as well is the concept of holding the space for someone. And basically what that means is that you don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. You just have to let them know that they are valid and that you are here to support them. The best example that I can give of this came from a therapist that I was speaking to. And she told me the story of a time where she was working with a client, a young client that had PTSD. And they were playing hide and seek on the equine assisted therapy facility. And this girl was like, hey, Sally, let's go hide in the dumpster. So they go hide in the dumpster and it's (laughs) dark and smelly and there's something dripping behind them. And it's just a gross place, right? It's the inside of the dumpster. (laughs) And this girl looks at Sally and she's like, hey, Sal, this is kind of what life is like, isn't it? And that just hit Sally so hard. Sally was a therapist because to this girl living with PTSD, that was her life. She couldn't just hop out of the dumpster whenever she wanted to because she can't just like drop her PTSD at the door and be like, right, I'll pick you up at two. You know, that is her life every single day. And for Sally, she could have gotten out. She could have gotten out of the dumpster whenever she wanted because that wasn't her life. But her choice to sit there in the darkness with that girl and just be there with her and not judge her and not say anything, not try to fix her, but just to be there, that is the most powerful thing that you can do for someone who's struggling. So when you were saying that you just gave her a hug and was like, Hey, I'm here for you. Honestly, that's the best thing that you can do for her is just to let her know that she is heard, that her emotions are valid and that she's not alone in what she's going through. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's really good advice right there. Cause you know, it seems like when, when sometimes when you vent or, you know, talk to somebody, 
right away they just start bombarding you with advice or what to do. But sometimes mm-hmm. you just want to be heard, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can, of course, turn around and ask for advice then after you've gotten it all out. It's like, okay, James, what do I do with this? And then James is like, well, here's my opinion. You know, you can have that conversation if you want it. But like you said, a lot of times you just need to get it out and have someone sit there with you and let you know that you're not crazy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and um, so uh, the ecotherapy and the therapy with animals, um, is there any like, is there any way that's most effective or is just whatever fits, you know, whatever works? Yeah, they all have different levels of effectiveness, I guess, depending on what you resonate best with. So if you don't like being outside or you don't like horses, then equine assisted therapy is probably not going to be your best fit. Some of the therapies that I talk about as well are more somatic and they work on releasing the physical part of trauma. Some of them look at rewiring brain patterns and memory storage and things like that. So I guess it really just depends on what you're looking for, what your biggest need is and where you feel the most at home. Oh, so about that uh, rewiring brain patterns, can you tell me more about that? That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. So when a traumatic event happens, essentially you have all of these hormones and emotions running through your body and you aren't able to fully let them play through and that gets stuck in your body as some sort of somatic storage and that also affects your memory of that event because it encodes it incorrectly so if you've been in a car accident for example you can think back to that moment and you can remember spinning around on the ice and an airbag blowing up and things like that but you don't feel like you're reliving it. You don't start to panic. You don't start to cry. You don't start to do all of those very emotional things. But someone with a traumatic memory that got encoded improperly, they will start to panic and they will remember the fear and the pain and the screaming and all of these things that cause the traumatic memory to resurface. So there's a therapy. Yeah, there's a therapy called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And what that does is through bilateral stimulation, it works with both sides of your brain, right, bilateral, to recode that memory properly. So it's no longer this very emotionally wrought traumatic memory. It is just a memory of a car accident or an assault or whatever. So it works at recoding that memory so you don't have those deep and terrifying emotions still stuck to it. Wow. I had no idea that was possible. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really powerful therapy for trauma. And it sounds so funny because if you watch it from the outside, it literally just looks like you sitting there and the therapist waving their hand back and forth in front of your face, kind of like a metronome. <laughs> and you're like, this is ridiculous. This is like hypnosis or something. It's really dumb. But if you look at the research and you look at the anecdotes surrounding it, it is so, so powerful. And like we were talking about earlier, when you're like, if it works, it works. No one really knows exactly how this works. But there have been so many studies, so many people that have found such rapid healing and such powerful healing through EMDR that it's a widely accepted and supported method of trauma therapy. It's really powerful. So the numbers are there. You know, that's the proof right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. I had no idea you could rewire somebody's brain like that. So yeah. that's probably amazing for like, you know, of course, assault victims or abuse, but like. Uh, you know, what about like PTSD or something, you know, what about somebody that's been through like war maybe or? Absolutely. It, I mean, it works in similar ways, right? So if you have been assaulted, you have that vivid memory of the person jumping out from behind the building and grabbing your purse and the flash of the knife and whatever that assault looks like. And a war veteran is the same way. They, they see the bombs, they hear the cries of the people that they lost, you know, their friends that were next to them. Whatever that is, it's that memory that is encoded improperly that causes the PTSD. So it doesn't really matter what type of trauma you had. It's more about whether or not that memory is encoded correctly. Yeah, because I've heard stories of like, you know, veterans being at Walmart, you know, and they're by the electronics and how they have the TVs and they start hearing the bombs of like an action film. They just drop to the ground, you know, in the middle mm-hmm. of Walmart. Mm-hmm. Or a car backfiring or fireworks or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea that was a thing, but that's extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That was kind of the best part of doing all this research for the book is there were so many therapies that I started hearing about them for the first time. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, there's no <laughs> way this works. And then you read the studies and you talk to the experts and you're like, oh, wait, never mind. This actually works really, really well. So it was such a cool experience to get to learn about all these different therapies. <laughs> so is that one of the like the weirdest or like kind of off therapies? Um. I think so. I mean, if you think about it, you're like, okay, I'm going to wave my hand in front of your face a bunch and then everything's going to be better. You're like, what the hell? Uh, But I mean, there's a couple others. I think craniosacral therapy and flower essence therapy were some of the other ones that were like, I don't believe this. And then you start to learn more about it and you're like, oh, well, maybe never mind. I do believe in this. What's that? Would you say a craniosacral therapy? Craniosacral therapy, yeah. It's a process of looking at where your cerebrospinal fluid is stuck up in your body. So remember how I talked about how there's that somatic portion of trauma that gets stored in your body? Mm-hmm. Craniosacral therapy looks at the flow of energy throughout your body and where that stuck energy is. And then using very, very light physical touch releases that energy to flow through your body and thereby release your trauma. So craniosacral therapy is great for trauma, but it's also great for lots and lots of different things. So um, if you are anxious, if you are stressed, if you have a physical injury that needs some reworking of the fascia in there, it can work through that. But yeah, I mean, when I first started hearing about this, I was like, energy flow and it gets stuck in your fascia. What are you talking about? And again, you hear some of the stories and you read some of the research and you're like, oh, oh, okay you know, and I I got to go actually try it myself. And it was, it was really interesting because of course I went in a little bit skeptical. I'm definitely a skeptical person when it comes to different things like that. And I went in and she's like, okay, so, you know, some people fall asleep. Some people kind of go into this daze, whatever. I was like, okay, okay, whatever. So she started working on me. And about halfway through the session, I knocked out, like I was out. I don't know whether I fell asleep or what happened, but I was out and I woke up to her being like okay we have about five minutes left so I'm just going to bring you back to your body and I didn't feel really different right away but I slept so differently that night my back pain was gone it was just dramatic because of just this energy work that she did and after that experience I was like oh yeah okay there's definitely something here to this so that was really cool to experience as well yeah just some things you can't deny you know I know. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is if you go and it works for you and you feel different because of it, then I mean, I guess in my opinion, I don't really care why it works if it does. And it's almost like, you know, you might think it's like a placebo effect, but I mean, if you're skeptical, I don't think that would work. The placebo effect, you know, that's what I'm thinking anyway. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And a, the placebo effect is powerful. So even if it is a placebo effect, it's still working. So my trauma is still released. I guess I don't really care whether it's the placebo or not. Yep, but very true. it's funny that you brought it up because with flower essence therapy, there was a study that they did that tested whether or not it was just a placebo effect. And they concluded that it didn't matter how skeptical you were about flower essence therapy, it still worked and thereby proved that it wasn't a placebo effect. And I saw that study and I was like, whoa, this is really cool. <laughs> and that definitely helped, you know, confirm my belief in that therapy as well. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, the human mind is very powerful and you pretty much can create your own reality, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I don't know, the placebo effect, I think that's in many cultures and beliefs. But like you're saying, you know, it it works. (laughs) Right, I know, I know. And, you know, they, they run studies with different physiological medications now and they're like, it has to be significantly more effective than the place, than just the placebo. And it's like, yes, that's true. And I get why you don't want to just give people random pills and hope that the placebo effect works. But when you think about it from a psychological perspective, it's like, they're still getting that healing. So even if we don't know exactly how EMDR works, or we don't know exactly why nature is so powerful, they're still getting that healing. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. Yeah. It just, it blows me away. <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing about that though because I start talking about this stuff and people are like I've never heard of this and I'm like that's the point like that's why I wrote all of this is so that you can learn about it and you can know that there are, are alternatives to healing than just talk therapy yeah I had no idea about all these alternatives that's crazy but this is this is amazing <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome to hear I almost want to get that uh what you were saying the uh, cranial, I'm sorry. Cranial sacral? Yes. I almost want to get right. there just so I can sleep better. 
do it. <laughs> I give it a shot. I mean, see if it if it helps you sleep better. Man, I have so much trouble sleeping. I don't know why. Always been like that. Always stayed up all night. <laughs> huh? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that could help. Wow. And um, yeah. And uh, so when when does your uh, what's your book called, and when does it come out? It's called How to Heal: A Practical Guide to Nine Natural Therapies You Can Use to Release Your Trauma, and it comes out on Tuesday, May fifth. Nice. And uh, where can uh, where where can they get this book? So it's going to be available on all major platforms, so Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. But if you guys want to read the first three chapters for free, you can do that on my website at jessiebuyerinternational.com forward slash chapters. Nice. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend this. This, uh, this sounds so interesting. I had no idea about all these alternatives. You know, like I said, I'm still blown away. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. It's awesome. It's so, it's so awesome. And, um, yeah, um, thank you for uh, coming on and, um, yeah, very, very interesting stuff here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, yeah, uh, maybe if you come out with another book or you want to be on again, you're always welcome. Oh, thank you. I'll definitely, yeah. When I publish my next book, I'll be back and like, we can talk about that stuff too. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thanks again for being on and, uh, well, you have a good one. Yeah, you too. Okay, bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And if you'd like to support this podcast, you can find me at anchor.fm slash screamingchewygmail.com. There'll be three options for a monthly subscription. First one, I believe, starts at a dollar a month, yo. Yeah, dollar a month. Yeah, and if you don't want to, that's cool. You can follow me on Facebook and YouTube, Screaming Chewy Show, for some memes, some more videos for episodes, and behind-the-scenes kind of deal, right? You can follow me on Twitter, uh, Screaming Chewy. Yeah, not Screaming Chewy Show. I should probably change it. But it's just Screaming Chewy. And uh, thanks for listening. Peace.